This is the Byron Bledsoe Podcast, Senior Pastor of C3 Church in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for checking out today's message. We hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Let's jump into the message. I was probably five or six years old, and my parents bought two Ottomans from Ethan Allen. Now, this was back in the 70s, so one was orange, one was green. They were leather on top. And uh, my mom, at that point, did not work outside the home. Dad was a school teacher, so back in the day, they made like five bucks a month. And so they had saved for months for these two Ethan Allen Ottomans. They were so proud of them. And the day they arrived, my parents would pick them up, brought them in the house. They're sitting there in the den, and they're the only pieces of Ethan Allen furniture my parents owned. Like, this was the bomb.com furniture in our home. The day they got home, my dad went back. He also coached football. He went back to school, dealing with, you know, practice, whatever. Mom went to the back of the house, and I, I noticed, five, six years old, I noticed, sitting right there on the edge of the fireplace, there was this 12-inch wooden ruler with a metal edge along the side, and I thought, the only thing that would make those ottomans more special is if I carved my initials in it. So I took that ruler and I carved both of those ottomans. It was beautiful. It was art. I mean, it, it was amazing, I thought, until my mom came walking down the hall and turned into the family room. I, I've never seen a face like that or heard a noise like that in my entire life. Like everything they had done was just wasted. And I thought about that. That's a lot like the book of Genesis. It, it's a lot like your story and my story where God creates something beautiful for us, and we have a better idea, something we think would make it even better, and God creates this amazing world, and we break it. God has an idea for how we're supposed to live in healthy, connected relationships, how we're supposed to live an above-average life, how we're supposed to enjoy each other, what kindness looks like, what love looks like. God has all these ideas and says, live this, and we constantly seem to be trying to improve on what God put in place. And yet, in trying to find some sort of joy, some sort of significance, some sort of purpose in life, in our careers, in our relationships, in our sexuality, in our family, in what we do or what we make, we've now gone through about 10 pages in Genesis of coming up empty-handed. Nothing has worked. Have you been there? Where no matter how hard you try, no matter what you seem to do, it, it seems like you just always kind of come up short. It, it never is fully what you hoped it would be. And I, I want something better. There's got to be something different. I, I, I deserve something better. I want something more out of life. And yet, no matter what we try so often, it never quite does it. We seem to always miss it. We have ideas that invigorate us. And yet, as we chase them, they disappoint us. Have you ever noticed? So many things we try to do simply don't work. They don't improve the marriage. They don't enhance our parenting. They don't elevate our lives. And in our constant striving and chasing, we're always kind of coming up short. And God knew, our God knew, that that would be our dilemma. So he he puts in plan, in motion his plan, to solve a problem for us that we can't solve. Two chapters ago in Genesis, we meet Abraham. 
He's called Abram. And by the way, in the Bible, he, he has a name change. He's initially Abram, and then God changes his name to Abraham. You're going to hear me call him both just out of habit, but it's the same guy. It's one guy, and God makes this audacious promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you the father of a nation, but not just any nation. I'm going to make you the father of, of my people. And he tells Abraham to leave everything that he has and follow him. Go to a place that he'll show him. And Abraham leaves everything but Lot. And this morning, for just a couple of moments, I, I want us to look as we move into chapter 14, the, the problem with having a lot. Because just like us, Often there's a little part of our old lives that we drag with us as we follow Jesus. It's not for me. Maybe it's different for you. For me, I don't wrestle with new sins. I wrestle with old sins, the things I've always wrestled with. It's not something new, something different. Oh, what about this this time? It's the stuff that has always sort of haunted me, plagued me, the stuff that it's hard for me to shake loose. And you have some areas in your life where there are things you wrestle with. I have those areas in my life. We all do. And they're unique to each individual. But if you look at the landscape and the history of your life, typically you wrestle today with what you've always wrestled with. And you drag with you into today what's been with you for a long time. Abraham and Lot have now split up in chapter 13. They've been blessed so much that conflict erupts and it's too much to manage, so they go their separate ways. And even though Abraham is the one with the promise, he lets Lot choose. He says, hey, we need to split up. Together we're too big, there's too much conflict. You pick where you want to go. Abraham has the blessing, but he lets Lot choose where he wants to go. And Lot looks towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and it looks beautiful and bountiful. And he says, I'll take that. I mean, who wouldn't? There's an underlying spiritual principle here and a lesson that we would do well and would serve us well if we pay a little bit of attention to, and that is this. Sometimes, from a distance, things look beautiful and bountiful. But when you get closer and you step into it, it's nothing like what it would appear to be. Sometimes there are things we look at from a distance and we think, I want that. I have to have that. I need that. That would enhance my life. I would be better off with that. Only to discover what you thought you needed so badly is going to wreck your life. And I need to warn you, as we move into these first few verses of chapter 14, I need to warn you, I need to warn you. The first 11 verses, I don't know if I can say this in church, but the first 11 verses are some of the most boring Bible you've ever read in your life. Is it okay to say that? Like the first 11 verses, you're like, what? What is this? What in the world does this have to do with me? How is this going to help or enhance my life? But I'll tell you a couple things that are important. First of all, it's the first recorded war in all the Bible. Five kings go to battle against four kings. Who cares? Well, we care because of the verse that follows the first 11 verses. Hang, Hang with me. Watch this. Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. At the time when A was king of Shinar... By the way, if you come across hard names in the Bible, just say the first initial. And if you're in a group reading it, just read it like you know what it says. And if you have enough confidence, everybody will think you know what you're talking about. But nobody knows these names. None of us were alive back then. So you either call it hard name or you just say the initial. At the time when A was king of Shinar. Now, Shinar, it's interesting to note, is Iraq. And Ariok, king of E-K, king of Elam. Elam is Iran. And title, king of G, these kings went to war against B, king of Sodom, and B, king of G, and S, king of Adam, and S, king of 
Z and king of B, that is Zor, all these later kings, that's how you do it. That's how you do it. All these later kings joined forces in the Valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years they'd been subject to K, but in the 13th year they rebelled. It's kind of interesting. The very first time war is mentioned in the Bible, Iraq, Iran. It's kind of interesting. But it's not the war. It's the purpose beneath it that's much more profound. Yeah, there's a battle, there's a war that's going to take place, but the bigger issue is often when you and I read things in Scripture, often when you look at life, it's not what's on the surface, it's the purpose beneath it that has profound impact for our lives. Verse 5. In the 14th year, K and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the R in AK and the Z in H and the E in SK and the H in the hill country of S as far as El Paran, got that one, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to EM, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of A and the king of Z, and the king of B, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of S against K, king of E, T, king of G, A, king of S, and A, king of E. Four kings against five. That's all you need to know. Four kings against five. Like, the names don't matter. It's the principle underneath it. Four kings against five. Now, the valley of Siddam was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot. That's the point. That's why the first 11 verses. That's why this battle is recorded in Scripture. They captured Abraham's nephew Lot. They took somebody that Abraham loves, and he's now going to be a captive, a slave, for these four kings who defeated the five kings. Something that is precious to Abraham has been taken. They took him in his possession since he was living in Sodom. Sometimes when something looks beautiful and bountiful from a distance and you decide that's the direction you want to go, you will be taken captive in a way that you could have never predicted. Verse 12 of chapter 13, Abraham says to Lot, you choose. And Lot saw these sittings as pleasing. Lot was motivated, motivated by greed and wealth. He was not thinking, hey, I'm with Abraham, and he's the one that God's blessed, so I should let him pick. Oh, I get to pick? Okay, I want the best. I, I'm going to go for what I see as the best. And what's interesting, Lot goes from being near the city to being in the city, because what you position your life near, you will eventually be in. He goes from being near to in the city, and then not long after he's in the city, he eventually becomes one of the rulers on the city council of Sodom. He goes from being near the city, it looks really good, to in the city, oh, I think I could make this my home, to eventually being one of the leaders in that city. And a messenger comes to Abraham. Verse 13, a man who had escaped came and reported this to Abraham, the Hebrew. That's important. Now Abraham was living near the great trees of Marm and the Amorite, the brother of E and A, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out 
318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Why does it call him Abram the Hebrew? Why so descriptive? It's very, very simple. Abram had earned a reputation. He's Abram the Hebrew. He's not just Abram. He, he has something that he's known for. Much in the same way that you and I as followers of Jesus. Man, I hope you have earned a reputation in the office or the classroom, on the field or in the neighborhood. I hope you've earned a reputation of, oh, that's so-and-so, a Christ follower. I hope the way you live so identifies with, with who you say you are that, that you've earned a reputation that is connected. And you're not just you, you're you, the Christ follower. He's Abram the Hebrew because of the reputation. Now, Hebrew is interesting. The word, there are a couple of different things that scholars, biblical scholars, argue over about what this word comes from. One, it could be a form of Abram's father's name, and that's a possibility, but I, I tend to lead toward what other biblical scholars teach, and that is that it's more to do with the name Hebrew and what it actually means. Hebrew literally means one that passes through. One that's just passing through. Someone that lives with an understanding that all of this is temporary. The people of the Passover. One that's just passing through. It's a reminder, I think, don't get caught up in this life, because this life is not the main thing. We're just passing through. And what you and I do here, it's not about building a life. What you and I do here is really building our next life. It's always been interesting to me. We plan for graduation. We plan for our weddings. We plan for the birth of our kids. We plan for retirement. But how much thought do we give for planning for eternity? We're here 70, 80, however many years, saggy years old, like however long we live here. But then we spend forever in eternity. We put, we put so much thought and focus into here and now that is so temporary, but we are just, we're just passing through. Like this is just for a moment. Don't live, don't, don't make decisions in your life like this is the main event. It's not. This is not the main event. I, I hope you have a reputation, especially in your home, especially with the people closest to you. I hope you have a reputation that you live with eternity in mind. Yes, you set goals in life. You want to have the highest sales. You want to hit a certain GPA. You want to accomplish certain things in athletics or extracurricular activities. Good goals. Have goals. Have goals. But what are your eternal goals? What are the things that you're shooting for beyond this life? Because this life is about so much more than this life. What are the things when you consider forever that you measure by success based on eternity? I hope you have a reputation as being someone with eternity in mind. Parents, I hope you're teaching your kids that this life is not all there is to life. And, and that you think about and you process and you plan with eternity in mind. A, a reputation where you've set goals on eternal things, not temporary things. Are you, are you trying to become somebody in this world? Are you trying to come, become somebody for this world, helping people live for an eternity that God offers us. 
They're two very different things. Abram's built a name for himself, the Hebrew. What are you known as? In your circle of friends, the people who know you the best, uh, he, he's the one with the temper. She's the one that brings the drama of drama. Like, what is it you're known for by the people who know you the best? Ah, oh, they're lighthearted. Ah, oh, he takes life a little too seriously. He's always intense. She's always kind of flighty. Like, what is it that you are known for? This battle, four kings defeat five kings. It's old school Braveheart gladiator. It's that. And in the midst of this, they take Lot. Someone gets away to tell Abraham they, they took Lot. And so Abraham begins to strategize. He begins to plan. And he's going to go get the thing that he loves because he can't tolerate this. Verse 15, during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them. Pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Don't miss this. This is not just that Abraham rescues Lot. This is not just that something profound happens and they win a battle. Think about it. Think about it. In all of the Bible, if anyone could walk up into the enemy territory by themselves and say, I'm so-and-so, I'm here to get my nephew, and, and have a bold kind of faith. Remember, this is Abraham who God promised, I'm going to bless you like I've not ever blessed anyone. You're going to be blessed to be a blessing to others. And people who bless you, I will bless. And what else did he say? People who curse you, I will curse. No one will lay a hand on you. I've got you. You're mine. I'm taking care of you. If anybody could have just walked in by themselves and said, hey, give me a lot right now. It's Abraham. But he doesn't do that. Why doesn't he do that. He, he's not casual or careless in his faith. Notice the amount of strategizing and planning and preparation. The thought that he puts into this rescue mission, we, we just read in Scripture, he calls out 318 trained men. 318 men in his household that have been trained. Why would you bother training people when you've been told you're going to be the father of a nation? I'm going to bless you. Nobody's coming against you or I'll take care of it. I've got your back. Why in the world would you bother training 318? He's leading a large family. He's leading a large organization. 318 trained men. I have five trained men in my household. Hopefully, I'm at least partially trained. I have two sons, two son-in-laws. Then I have three half-trained men, three little grandsons. And so at best, I've got five trained men and three half-trained men. Like that's all I've got. He has 318, and Abraham has the promise of God, yet he rolls into town with a trained and equipped army. Why train for battle when you have the promises of God? And not only does he have these three trained men, he also, we read in verse 13, has an alliance with other leaders. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Marm, the Amorite, the brother of Ishkal and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. And he's got a reputation of being a Hebrew, somebody that's different. There's something different about him. And he's got a relationship with Lot that demands he do something because when you have a relationship and you care, you act. So 
when Abram sees Iran and Iraq and all the people they've taken and what they've taken, instead of impulsively reacting in anger, he decides to wait until nightfall. The strategy, the thought he puts into this. He waits until nightfall. He splits up his forces. They attack from different angles for greatest impact. Why didn't he just walk up into their camp announcing who he is? After all, a reputation. Why does he function this way? Because he uses his brain to live his faith. So often in our culture, we think coming to Jesus is a crutch. Or we think coming to Jesus is for weak-minded people. Or we think coming to Jesus is something that if you just can't take it and you need a little bit of help, strong people got it. But if you need a little bit of help, then, then you just put your, your faith in Jesus. But Abram, it, it, see, following Jesus doesn't mean you become ignorant and check your brain at the door. I gave Jesus my heart and my soul, but I also gave him my brain. In fact, when I became a Christ follower, I gave my heart and life to Jesus, but I'm a Christ follower in part because I use my brain. The hundreds of prophecies fulfilled throughout Scripture that only God could pull off, never one time finding any moment in human history that the Bible has been incorrect or wrong, I, I use my brain. The few hundred people that say they saw the resurrected Jesus after he was crucified, and these people turned the world upside down, Listen, you, you have to think about this. Men who had been cowards after they see Jesus after the resurrection are now fearlessly courageous and are willing to have their lives taken, not because of what they believe, but because of what they saw. Something changed in them. A, a book that has been the bestseller worldwide for over 2,000 years, not because it can be easily torn apart and dissected, but because it's been able to stand the test of time and not one fact has been disproven. Becoming a Christ follower is not an ignorant act of desperation. It is the only intelligent conclusion a person can come to Jesus in three years in three years think about how long we've been alive in three years he so turns the world upside down in his public ministry and wrecks our calendar to the point that the entire calendar on the globe is reset by one person this is not a dumb person's religion this is a thinking person's faith do not think Christianity is about praying a prayer where you give your life to Jesus and then you just rest in cruise control and you don't worry about it because God's made you some promises no he says think use your brain in circumstances circumstances. I gave you the brain. Engage it, use it, and encounter people with it. Becoming a Christ follower is for thinking people. And I love that Abram holds on to and builds his confidence with the promises of God in mind to figure out how to best live in that promise. Hey, listen, if you're a person of faith, if you're a Christ follower, whatever you're facing, lean into your faith, but use your brain. Use your brain and accept what happens. Embracing the promises of God and following Jesus is not an excuse to be lazy or ignorant. We think far too often collectively that because we've prayed this prayer and we say we believe in God and we've trusted Him with our eternity that we've got a home in heaven after this life and so really we can just kick back and remember He said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Oh, that's good. He said, you can come to me with any care and need you have. Oh, that's good. We've got all these promises. He said, I'll forgive you. I'll remove your, your sin as far as the east is from the west. God says, I will even forget your sin. All you need to do is just confess it to me and, and listen, I, I've got it and, and 
Far too often, we become spiritually obese, resting in the promises of God while just being brain dead and living like everybody else in life that doesn't know him. Because we think we have a few promises to hold on to. There is no replacement for preparation. A guy guy who God says, I'm going to bless you like crazy. Notice, he didn't just call up 318 men. He called up 318 trained men. So even though he was blessed by God, even though he had the promises of God, even though he's going to have a bright future because of God, he still prepares. He doesn't rest in the laziness and the comfort of I'm, I'm good with God. He still works. He uses his brain. He trained. These are trained men. And the preparation always happens before the event. You don't wait until it's time to go rescue somebody to start to prepare. You start now. You start preparing now for the doors that God will open in the future. You don't wait until it happens. And there, he's prepared. There's no replacement for preparation. Somebody has said, pray like it depends on God and work like it depends on you. Do your best and leave the results up to God. And then verse 17. Verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kay and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba. That is the king's valley. And Abraham is about to struggle with what many of us struggle with. In fact, he's about to struggle with something that is one of the greatest obstacles to our faith. He's about to struggle with success. And this is not the first week we've talked about this. Because in this passage, early in the Bible, the first 12, 13, 14 pages, God lays out this idea that, yes, failure is hard and you're going to struggle with it, but you will struggle just as much when you're successful, if not more, in certain moments. Failure can make us realize our need for God. What we're never taught is that often our greatest strengths can be our greatest weaknesses. And if you're not careful, that measure of success you have can stand in the way between you and God. Because in success, you feel like you have the right to claim all the glory. Look what I did. Look what I accomplished. Look how I handled this. My education, where I went to school, nobody gave me anything. I worked hard. I paid every dime for it. I put myself through school. I worked hard and got these opportunities. Nobody will outwork me. I'm going to outwork everybody else, and I'm going to achieve some things, and your entire focus is on you. Notice what Abraham did. He goes to war, but we don't read that he ever prayed about it. He goes to war, but we don't read that it was a step of faith to go to war. It was just family loyalty. I brought something with me that I shouldn't have brought, so I feel responsible, and I've got to take care of it. He's my responsibility now. When we bring Lot with us, something God has told us to let go of and leave in the past, Every single time, it will cost you more than you wish you had to pay. When we fail to let go of what God says let go of, it's always going to cost us. I've seen it happen in my own life over and over again. Abraham goes to battle, and we don't read anywhere that God's in this. Abraham uses his army, his strategy, his alliances, his might. He chases the enemy 100 miles north, kicking their tail. The captives are set free, and the captives, by the way, when Abraham's riding through the Valley of the Kings, the captives have already gone back home to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham returns with his army, and as he's riding through this valley, who is it that comes to meet him? A king. 
the king of Salem. And when kings travel, so do people. And Abraham, how's he riding? His chest has to be puffed out a little bit. <laughs> they're, throwing, they're throwing me a parade. We just won the Super Bowl. Giants fans, y'all don't know anything about that. But we, we just won the Super Bowl, and, and we're riding in town like I'm feeling good about myself. These people are coming to thank me. These people are coming to honor me. And, and after all, I do deserve it. Look what, look, at what I, look at what I just did. And now he struggles with what many of us struggle with, what I did. Have you ever been full of yourself? Have you ever thought more of you than God does? Have you ever thought, my family, my neighborhood, my world, my job, they're blessed to have me. I'll never forget Angie and I visited a church one time. In fact, it was the church that I had grown up in, and we'd moved away, and we went back to visit. And I literally, the pastor standing on the platform, I literally heard the pastor say to the church, y'all need me way more than I need you. That joker, about two years later, was calling sex lines from his church cell phone. You get caught when you do that, by the way. <laughs> he was fired, lost his family. The audacity where we puff ourselves up and we think more of ourselves than we should. Your value, how precious you are, has very little to do with you. It's only resting in the fact that there's a God who created you that invites you to call him Father. And he loves you and he cares about you. The value that is attached to you is not because of what you've accomplished. It's because of who God is and how much he loves you. And I, for one, am insanely grateful for that because I know better than anybody, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve an ounce of it. And then verse 18, now this, <laughs> this is fascinating. And, and for just a second, I'm going to go a little bit Bible nerd on you. And, and so if you can just hang with me, I think this will mean something when we get there. J just hang with me. Verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, which also means Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. Where, where have I heard that before? Bread and wine. Where? He was priest of the most, of God most high. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave a tenth of everything. Salem is short for Jerusalem. Salem literally means peace. And he comes, Melchizedek, comes from nowhere, comes out of nowhere, bringing bread and wine. And he's also, he's, Priest of God Most High, the very first time priest is ever mentioned in the Bible. There's a problem. There are no priests. There won't be priests for eight more generations. Four generations from now, there will be Levi, and we will be told in Scripture that priests have to come from the house of Levi. Four generations after that, there will be Aaron, and we are told that all high priests have to come from the line of Aaron. We are eight generations away from priests even being a thing. This guy was before his time. He, he comes riding in out of nowhere, gets out of the DeLorean, opens up, and Melchizedek steps out, and he says, let me say a few words and then go back to my time. Also in the Old Testament, by the way, you cannot be both priest and king. The Bible had this idea in history that when you combine the religious leader with the leader of a nation, bad things happen. The Crusades were never God's idea. He doesn't want a dominant, ruling, 
ruling leader who forces people to believe something that they don't really believe. I think God is a God of freedom, the freedom of choice. You can receive me or not, up to you. And, and so in the Old Testament, you can't be both priest and king. And yet we have Melchizedek who simply rides out as the king of Jerusalem, the king of peace, and the priest of God most high. And he brings bread and wine. Where, where have we heard of bread and wine? Do you see what's happening? The first king of Jerusalem, the first priest long before priest, and he's got communion. It will be 3,500 years before Jesus will recline with his closest followers and break the bread that he calls his body and the wine that he calls his blood. 3,500 years before that, this happens. Melchizedek brings bread and wine. And he blesses Abram. Abram has only been blessed one other time. By who? God. And his message to Abram? You remember the verse we just read? Um, I know what you're thinking. This wasn't you. I know you're really proud of yourself, but remember in life, when you get really proud of yourself, you forget to be proud of God. You think you you pulled this off? Are are, are you serious? This was not you. And, And I don't want you just chasing a higher power that you can work up where you can achieve some things on your own. I want you to know the highest power, God most high, and by the way, I represent him. Now, some say this was Jesus before Bethlehem, Jesus in the Old Testament, maybe. I tend to think this is a picture of a Christology, a a, a glimpse. Melchizedek will never be seen again. He comes from nowhere. He has no history. We do read about him in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews, interesting name. Chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains priest forever. In the Jewish culture, you can't be a priest unless you come from the line of Aaron. And the Bible says that Jesus came from the line of Judah And the author of Hebrews is saying, hold up. You think you can't be a priest unless you come from the line of Aaron, but you you do remember Melchizedek who did not come from the line of Aaron. In the same way, you have in Jesus someone, the only other one who's both a priest and a king. And right when Abraham is full of himself, Melchizedek enters and says, remember, I'm king of righteousness. I'm king of peace. I'm priest of the most high God. Let me help you get over yourself so you can get under God's authority so he can bless you the way he wants to. Let me help you get over yourself so you can get under God's authority so he can bless you the way he wants to. God will never be able to bless you the way he wants to until you're willing to come under his authority and recognize Every good thing in your life is a gift from God. You are responsible for accomplishing nothing except being faithful to a God who does it all through you. Well, it's my brain. Who gave you that brain? Who gave you the gifts, the ability, the acumen that you have to pull off and make the decisions and assimilate the information? Who do you think gave you that? 
You didn't give you that. You didn't decide when you were five years old, because now that's apparently when we decide our gender. You didn't decide, I'm going to identify as a genius like that. No, you were given that brain by a God who says, I'm doing it all. You get to take no credit, but you get something better. You get to be in the family and get to receive the blessings that come from it. It's incredible. Have you gotten over yourself? Or do you still pursue your agenda? Are you more proud of your accomplishments or what God's done in your life? Listen. I, I don't have the words or the time to tell you how grateful I am for a God who chooses to love somebody like me. It blows me away. I lead the way I lead and I preach the way I preach and I love people the way I love people because I have not gotten over the fact that I don't deserve this. I'm a broken, flawed, messed up human being and it is only any good thing you see in my life or the life of C3 or my family, give Angie a lot of credit, but apart from that, it's Jesus. Like, it's just Jesus. That's it. I am learning. I've not perfected it. I've not arrived. I'm learning what it is to live under the authority of God and let him be in charge and let him be boss. And then verse 19. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high, who delivered. God did this. God did this. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. God did this, not you. God delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave a tenth of everything. It's a, it's a short blessing and he says you can move on from here blessed as long as you understand this you are blessed by God the most high you serve not a high power but the highest power he owns everything you have it is not yours that brain you used God gave it to you he is possessor of all it is all his it all belongs to him it is what God has done not what you have done that this parade this fanfare it's all for God not for you, it's him. You've managed it well, but it is his. And Abraham's response? He gives a tenth of everything. For the first time, he physically shows a response of faith and a response of trusting. Long before Scripture would even tell us that people of faith are supposed to tithe. Long before Scripture says the expectation, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that you will bring the first 10% of all of your gain to the local church. Long before that, Abram says, God, I've said many times it's all yours. Now I'm going to prove it. How big is your faith? How meaningful is your faith? If it doesn't draw out of you and me a response in the most difficult areas of life, how powerful is your faith if it doesn't cause you to say, I, I, I've got to do something tangibly just to thank God, just as an act of worship? And how much do you really trust God and give Him the credit instead of you taking it if you're not tangibly responding to His goodness and His faithfulness? But the king of Sodom the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high. First time he uses that name. He learned something from Melchizedek. He's not just God now, he's God most high. 
He's not just in my life now. He's number one in my life. He's the one that gets all the credit for everything. Creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to A, E, and M, let them have their share. What's interesting to me is these three men are not people of faith. They don't believe in God. He's made alliances with them, but yet in this moment when he says, I'm not going to let you give me anything because it's always going to be obvious that God is the one that takes care of me, he does not hold people that don't know God by the same standard he's going to live by. Oh, listen, there's a lot we can learn right there. We need to stop expecting people who don't know Jesus to act and live like they do. We need to stop expecting people who don't know Jesus to function the way we want them to. We need to be gracious and kind and loving toward everybody. And he says, listen, I'm not going to touch any of this. I don't want any of it. God's taking care of me. But for these three guys, let them take what they want. Because they don't, they don't live in the same connection with God. They're different in their relationship with God. The king of Sodom. Give me my people so I can rule. And Abraham says, I'm not keeping anything from you. You can claim any part of this. God's done this. I'm going to do this in a way that people know. I'm doing this from God and because of God. What's the big idea? Man, there's so many things, so many handles we can grab onto. But what's the big idea in this passage? How did we get here? How do we get 11 verses about a war that with a bunch of hard names, and, and then Lot. What, what is the big idea with this passage? What, what is God trying to say to us? I think there's the authority issue, live under God's authority, but it's a bigger issue. I think what this passage stresses is you're not done with your sin until you're done with your sin. You're not done with your sin when you keep dragging what harmed you and hurt you yesterday into your todays. You're not done with your sin until you flip your mentality and say, okay, God, you're God and I'm not. This is something I've been dragging along with me and you've said not to and I'm finally going to stop. I'm going to lay it down and let it go. You're not done with your sin until you're done with your sin. Lot, here's what's fascinating to me. Lot will take his family and his possessions and my man moves back to Sodom. Like you just got your life blown up. Because you saw something, you thought you needed to be there, you jumped into it, you became leader of it. And, and Lot was not confused about where he was living. He's one of the leaders. He knew that in Sodom the reputation was strong, and we'll come to it in a few weeks. He knew that in Sodom, if men traveling through stop to sleep the night and spend the night, they will be raped by the men of Sodom. He knew the kind of city and culture he was living in. And my man gets rescued from his life and his family being blown up, and he goes back to the same spot. But before we're too hard on it, I've done that. He goes to live in what hurt and harmed him. He leads himself back into sin over and over. And when you live near sin, you will eventually move into sin. And when you move into sin, it will eventually captivate you and you will be taken by sin. Lot was rescued and saved from something he wasn't done with. He moved right back into it. What about you? What is it today that you just need to lay down and let go? If you're a Christ follower, God has given us his best. God has blessed us. And that's to be used to rescue those that are in Sodom. So how do I use my life to reach 
and influence others. That is living for an eternal perspective. I know you're trying to build your retirement portfolio, but how does your eternity portfolio look? When we use what God has blessed us with to reach and rescue people who are living captivated by sin and struggling in life, that's our purpose. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your love for every single person in this room. Father, I pray as Christ followers this week, if there are things in our lives that you don't want there, I pray we would recognize that. I pray we would put ourselves under your authority. We would deal with that and we would let it go. We would leave it in the past where it belongs. Thank you for loving us. Help us to be on a rescue mission this week, using our influence not to build our own platform, but to build your kingdom. And then, Father, I pray for those in this room that may not know you. I pray today would be the day your spirit would draw them and they would give their lives to you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here today and you know that the greatest need of your life is to be relationally connected with God in a daily abiding and abundant relationship with a God who invites you to call him Father. If that's where you are, I'd love to lead you in a very simple prayer. If you'd like to invite Jesus to come into your life today, to forgive your sin and cleanse you, to give you a home in heaven after this life, and his spirit to live inside you in this life, if your purpose is, man, I want to invite Jesus into my life, and I want, I want him to be Lord. I want him to be my boss. I want him to be in control. He's God, and I am not, and I know that I need him. I want to invite you to pray a very simple prayer. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it in the quietness of your heart. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Just pray this prayer. Dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, please come into my life. Forgive my sin and help me to live for you. As best I know how, I give you my life. Thank you for loving me. Please help me to live each day in light of eternity and to rescue others. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. If you just prayed that prayer, we would love to know it. You can text your name to 407-487-8311 and Pastor Byron will be praying for you this week. And also, we want to thank you for your faithful generosity. You can go to giveC3.cc or you can text C3 Orlando to 77977. Thank you so much for how you give. And if you are in Central Florida, please join us in person at our campus at 9.30 or 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Have a great week.